before we do anything else, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you for your grace and your love and your goodness that finds us right where we are, and yet you love us too much to leave us there. So I pray even this morning that you'd have your way in our lives and our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you have been at work, that you are at work, and that there is much in store for us as we continue to trust you and look forward to all that you have for us. But today, in this moment, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us a heart with a burning, passionate love for you to see you glorified in our day and our time? Come and have your way as we ponder, as we read your scriptures. May it bear fruit in our lives. For your glory, King Jesus, we pray. Amen. With that introduction, let's jump into Acts chapter 20, and I want to give us a a bit of an overview of this chapter, and then next week we'll come and kind of fill in some of the blanks. But it says this in verse 1 of Acts chapter 20, after the uproar ceased. Now remember, we've looked at what I said a few weeks ago, I believe is the most wonderful, real account of revival that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. It's revival at Ephesus, where God did incredible things, where the Word of God prevailed mightily, it declares, where the whole region had uh, an encounter with the living God, where there was mass repentance. And then, of course, as often was the case, the revival gave way to a riot. What was the riot about? Well, there was various things, but interestingly, if you jump back to the end of verse 19, uh, at the end of the day, they say, we need to shut this thing down. It says, This is the exact phrase in verse 40, it says, because there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. We don't even remember what the commotion's about. Anyone feel like that kind of rings true in the midst of the day and age that we live? There's a lot of commotion, isn't there? And sometimes we've lost sight of what the cause is behind all the commotion in the first place. But nevertheless, the uproar ceases and Paul sends for the disciples. Everything's settled down. What does Paul do? He sends for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he says, farewell and departs for Macedonia. Now, the word encouraging there literally means embraces. He embraces them. This is not a teaching moment as much as it's a tender moment. He's embracing them. There's love and there's affection, and then he moves on. In fact, that'll set the scene for what I believe Luke is really trying to draw out of this chapter. We've seen the power of God working through uh, Paul's ministry, accomplishing great things. We've seen what a surrendered life can accomplish in terms of the the physical reality, the manifestation of the kingdom of God in a region. And in this chapter, we get an interesting insight into Paul's heart. Perhaps not the impact, but much more in in terms of his motivation. What is it that, that drove him? What was his motivation? That's kind of where we're getting Verse 2, it says, when they'd gone through these regions and he'd given them much encouragement, not just a little encouragement, he'd given them much encouragement. He gathered people around, he poured his life into them, he encouraged them, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, there was a plot made against him by the Jews, he's about to set sail for Syria, deciding to return through Macedonia. I'm going to have a crack here at some names, so bear with my Greek pronunciation. It says, Sopater the Berean, son of 
Furius accompanied him and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimius. Now, it's quite a list, not just in terms of the names, but Luke is making a point here to kind of outline the variety, the, the, uh, the differing people that Paul has gathered around him. There's this whole group of people who've come from various places. Verse 5, they went on ahead, being those group of people he just described waiting for us. So there's a whole other party, obviously including Luke as he pens this waiting at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to to Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now, keep your finger there, because we're going to come back and just look at one other passage of Scripture in this chapter. But here's the first reality that we encounter in, in chapter 20, in Luke's penning of this account. See, it'd be easy for us to have gone through the last chapter in this great revival, kind of thinking that Paul operated as a bit of a lone ranger. And certainly the Lord used him mightily. Certainly we see him there proclaiming day and night. But it's important for us to recognize that Paul always had people around him. The first missionary journey, of course, was Paul and Barnabas. In fact, Barnabas seemed to be more prominent than Paul. He then takes Timothy and Silas, and here we see a whole group of diverse people gathered around him. We've talked as we've gone through about his missionary journeys being not his good idea, but the Lord's calling, but sent out in the context of community. Time and time again, we see this picture, not just of Paul the Apostle, the solo man, the lone ranger, but a man who God used with an incredible call in the context of an incredible community. In fact, Paul himself, when he writes to the Philippians, he says, he calls them partakers. They're in partnership with him of the gospel. He says, you're equally as important to the the work that Christ is doing through me as I am in the proclamation. There's this acknowledgement continually from Paul, not just in the picture Luke paints, but in Paul's own admission of those around him being essential in the picture. What's also interesting to me is it's, it's not just a group that's gathered here, as Luke mentions and as I attempted to illustrate with bad Greek pronunciation. It's a group of diverse people. It's not just all people who necessarily agreed with him from the same social background, from the same environment, who looked the same. And we could look at these ethnicities. It's, it's very likely that these were people who physically looked as different as their upbringings were. It was a diverse group of people that had gathered around with no natural connection other than their mutual love for Christ and commitment to the cause of Christ. And you see, the gospel always has this picture of bringing people together. It is. It's this interconnected community that are all a part of the unfolding purpose of the expansion of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I love even the the picture of the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit falls and in the midst of everything else. One of the great manifestations is it says people from diverse regions who'd all gathered into Jerusalem at that time for the Holy Feast They heard the wonders of God, the the gospel, the good news being proclaimed, not in 
Hebrew, but in their own language. Like that was a catalytic event that happened as the Holy Spirit was poured out, poured out as the disciples were then commissioned, that this is what it's going to look like. People in their own tongues being brought in, in their own languages, the bringing in of a people, a harvest of a people, which of course accumulates in Revelation, doesn't it? He says, and there I saw people from every tribe and tongue bringing people into the gospel, not just a narrow group, not just like-minded people. See, here's the first point. We need people beside us. If the Apostle Paul did, then you and I do even more so. We need to, to stand beside one another. The question we need to ask is, who is standing with us? And you might say, well, nobody. I've heard that before. Who said that? Well, no, nobody. I'm all alone. Well, let me phrase it another way. Who are you standing alongside of? Who is it that would be listed as those people with you? They're standard, they're committed with you. Who are you standing with in the cause of the gospel? We are not called to be isolated, solo, lone rangers. We're called to be a connected people. The story I love to tell is a holiday account of when my family and I were traveling through California. We'd had some time off. We hired what I thought was going to be a camper van, and I'd envisioned the Australian version of the camper van, which is a van. As a bed, it has a little pop-up tent of some description. We had three kids. We needed something that fit five people, and we rocked up to the, the camper van lot, and what I discovered is we hadn't rented a camper van. It was a camper truck. Like, it was enormous, 40-plus feet long, this big hunk of metal that took us 20,000 point turns just to get out of the car park. And we took this thing, we had a great time exploring the coasts and some of the, uh, the natural wonders that are in that wonderful state and went up to see the Californian redwoods. If you've never seen a Californian redwood forest, you need to put it on your bucket list. And I was thinking as we were heading along the road to go and see the Californian redwoods, I don't know what I was thinking, I was thinking of some kind of forest. Certainly there was trees there, it was a forest, but what I wasn't expecting was the, the sheer cliffs. And we took Highway 1, which was this narrow little road, didn't quite know whether to stop and slowly turn or just honk the horn and fly around the corners and hope for the best, get out of the way for the camper truck. But the thing that struck me were, were these majestic trees standing tall, not in the middle of a, a fertile valley, but literally on a cliffside. And as I discovered, as we beheld the, the beauty of these monstrous trees, these marvels of nature, the interesting thing about the redwoods is they have the shortest root base for trees their size of any other species of trees in the world. And they defy nature in this way, that rather than the natural instinct, which of course for a large tree is for the roots to go down deeper, rather than going down deeper, that the roots spread very shallowly across to one another and they engage and entwine and get, gather their strength from holding on to one another, the other tree. That's, that's how they stand in the midst, defying nature on these cliff faces. Now, I would suggest to us that is a picture of the kingdom in the midst of a world that's defined by an individual sense of therapeutic fulfillment, this authentic self 
actualization, expressive individualism, we as the church of Jesus Christ can defy nature, not by the way that we live for ourselves, not by the way that we go deeper, but by the, the, the way that we love sacrificially one another. That's what we're called to do. That's how we're going to stand. That's how we're going to defy nature and the natural course of humanity by our radical love. As Jesus said, this is how the world's going to know that you are my disciples, by the radical love that you have for one another. So hold that thought. Let's go back to Acts chapter 20. As I said, I'm going to kind of give you the, uh, the parentheses. We'll go right to the end and then we'll come back next week. We'll kind of delve into some other aspects. But the, the chapter in the midst of, of Paul greeting people, he's gathering people around him. We see from verse 17 on, he calls the Ephesian elders, remembering that he's just had this incredible revival. The gospel's gone everywhere. Church is planted. He's gathered together the leaders and he gives them this final speech, which is stirring, which is encouraging, which we'll look at detail in detail next week. But jump down to verse 31. And in the midst of of, uh, reminding them of a whole lot of things, of warning them about what would come, in verse 31 he says this. This is him bringing to a conclusion his summit, his conference, his gathering together of the Ephesian elders, people he'd lived with for the past three years. He says, therefore, be alert. Verse 31, chapter 20. Remembering this, this is his final thing to leave them with. Here's what he wants them to remember. He says, remember this, that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. Admonish meaning to encourage, to stand alongside, to exhort, to lift up. Remember this, for three years I did, I never stopped standing alongside you, I never stopped encouraging you. I never stopped being there as a, a support, as the one who would, who would lift you up. Not only when it was easy, he says, but with tears, when it was difficult, through much sorrow, some translations say. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified Grab this in verse 33. It says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. That wasn't me. I was there for no other motivation. Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities. He worked to provide his own way. He didn't even ask for a wage or a salary for the three years that he was there. Verse 35, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we can help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed than it is to give than it is to receive. And then, of course, when he'd said these things, they kneel down, they pray, they weep, they embrace, and then he moves on. What an incredible way to end this time that he spends with the Ephesian elders. He says, remember, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now, that's a phrase I often use with my kids, you know, when they're fighting over who gets the first chocolate or some little issue. And sometimes we think, well, maybe that's the application that Jesus was saying. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, for Paul, it meant something different. To give meant literally to lay down his life. He said, here's what I want you to remember. It's not the signs and the wonders and the miracles. It's not the, the handkerchiefs that were raising the dead. 
I mean, I'm sure they would remember those and hang on to them, hang on to those things. It wasn't the rousing sermons. It didn't say, you know, remember the, the sermons that I preached and the, the good doctrine you've been taught. All of that is wonderful as well. Here's what he emphasizes as he concludes this. He's saying, remember this. Never lose sight of the reality and the way that I have sacrificially loved you, stood alongside you, encouraged you, lifted you up through much suffering and tears. I've, I've loved you. See, he wasn't just focused on preaching a sermon. He was focused on loving a people. And I want to challenge us with that reality. Just think about this. How many preachers, and this is ugh, a little challenging for me, how many preachers do you know that could honestly give that kind of testimony? As I stand before you, look at my life. Look at the way that for no gain, for, for nothing I could possibly get, I've poured out my life in love for you to encourage you, to support you, to lift you up. Hopefully there is many out there. Let's take it from preachers to each and every one of us. How many of us, of us honestly in this moment before the Lord, could honestly say, look at my life. Even this past year, a year that's been filled with points of view and politicizing and pontificating and every other P word you can think of, some that I won't mention here. In the midst of all that we've seen, how many of us honestly, honestly before the Lord say, you know what, that, that's me. I've lived a sacrificial life through sorrows, struggle, tears. I've left it all on the field in the pursuit of loving people. I've laid my, for, for, for no gain of my own. Could we honestly give witness and testimony to that? Here's the point as we bring this to a close and I might grab the band just to come up and get ready. You see, we cannot separate the gospel and love. We cannot. There's the great commission, but there is the great commandment. And it's not just the preaching and the proclamation of the message alone. It's how it is lived out, witnessed to, testified to in our lives. Put it this way, the Great Commission is not just to preach a sermon, it's to make disciples. And Jesus modeled that. Think about this. The Savior Himself, He steps down not just with a message, but with a movement of love for three and a half years, for longer, but three and a half years of ministry, He lived with His disciples as they fought over who was going to be the greatest. Well, I'm going to be the greatest. I'm going to sit at his right hand and his left hand. I'll have this position of, of power and authority. He clearly loves me more than he loves you. In the midst of that, he kneels down and he washes their feet. Cleans off the gunk. Says, guys, this is how it works. In the midst of them lashing out with words and even at times with swords, he Heals the ears. He cleans up the mess. When they're in the very throes of betrayal, the very evening where one of his own would intentionally betray him 
And when all the rest, bar one, would abandon and desert him. Where's Jesus in the picture? He's in their midst encouraging them. He's sharing a meal with them. He's loving on them. Not because they had everything together. Not because they all agreed and they were all on the same page. But in the very midst of their baggage. That's who he is. He's the God who comes and radically loves. See, the only face of God that has ever been revealed to humanity as Christ came, as Hebrews proclaims, he's the exact replication of the Father. God in human flesh. Bear in mind, we will see another aspect in reality of his face as he splits the sky and he returns to judge the living and the dead. But for now, the only face of God ever revealed to humanity is this God who cares, who saves, this radical God of love who meets us in this place called grace. He meets us in our places of need. He heals, he comforts, he restores, he lifts up the needy from the ashes. It's this kind of love that defines who we are. It's the main theme of our existence. It's our compass. And as I want to stir our hearts and encourage us with this morning, it's our call. It's our call. It's what we're called to do. And I want to finish this morning where we began. As we've talked about, well, what is it that we need to come through this season with? What, what is it? The good and the bad and everything else in between. Things we need to lay down. Things we need to grab a hold of. There's one thing the Lord is stirring on my heart, and it's this. We need to come through with this renewed commitment to love well. To love like He first loved us. To love sacrificially. To know what it is to be a people whose love, it binds us together. Not just because we all behave the same way and we look the same way. A sacrificial love. But like the Apostle Paul, we can say, man, it's been up and down. There's been challenges. But here's one certainty, is that I left it all on the table. I'm all in with the pursuit to love God and to love those around me. I just want to pray for us. If you want to just, whatever that looks like, as you gather this morning, just intentionally turn your heart towards the Lord. And my prayer is simply this, because the truth is that we, we cannot generate this kind of love, this sacrificial love, this love that just willingly gives. It's not something that is part of our human nature, that we just need to dig a little deeper and, and find it and work it up. It's not something that we need to strive a little bit harder for. The truth is that we can only ever give away this kind of love if we first 
receive this kind of love. As 1 John says, we love because he first loved us. So Father, I want to pray for us this morning. As we've prayed already that this would be a time of just laying down the baggage of allowing you to reveal the things that we need to leave behind. But I want to pray also, Lord, as we step from this current season into a new one as we gather together, that there would be a renewed commitment and even conviction in our hearts. In the midst of a world that's increasingly divisive, that's turning brother against brother and sister against sister, that we would be a people that defy nature by this reality of a radical love that so grabs a hold of us as we experience your unfailing, unfathomable, everlasting love and that leaves us with no other option but to love sacrificially those around us, those whom you've created in your image, those whom you've called by name, those whom you have paid the price of your blood to rescue and redeem and save. Give us a greater love. And I'm praying for myself here. Do what you need to do. Get rid of the baggage. Get rid of the stuff. Fill us with that fire of love that compels us to love others. And may we see a revolution of lovers. Not an army of resistors, an army of enforcers. Lord, make us a radical army of lovers. A people whose love for you, love for one another, is ever evident and ever growing. We pray that in your mighty and your wonderful name, King Jesus.